Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This is Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine, and I am pleased to welcome you to today's American Cinematographer podcast. One of the most talked about movies at this year's Sundance Film Festival was The Woman, a horror film that takes a somewhat familiar premise and turns it on its head to present a savagely skewed vision of patriarchal family values. The film basically reverses the trajectory of movies like The Hills Have Eyes and Deliverance, in which mild-mannered suburbanites find themselves under attack in an uncivilized wilderness. Here, family man Chris is out hunting when he discovers a feral woman who he promptly kidnaps and imprisons on his property. Chris recruits his wife and children on a mission of domesticating the young woman, but the question of who the truly civilized characters are becomes complicated extremely quickly. The Woman is the latest movie from director Lucky McKee, whose 2002 horror film May also premiered at Sundance and announced a startling new voice in American suspense films. For The Woman, he called upon director of photography Alex Vendler, who was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for his first feature film, The Bible and Gun Club. Since then, he's photographed dozens of features, documentaries, shorts, and television programs across a wide variety of genres, but it's safe to say that the fiercely original style of The Woman represents a new peak in his work. I'm pleased to welcome Alex to this podcast series to discuss the film. I had worked with Lucky on the movie Red, uh, doing some second unit and uh, um, uh, B-camera on that film, and I was very, I'm very close with the cinematographer who initially was shooting that film named Jaron Prezant, and... Uh, Jaron wasn't able to take this job, uh, and I'm not sure he wanted to after reading the script. And uh, I read it, and I understood the issues with it because it's extremely difficult material. Um, so I, you know, I called Lucky directly, and I, I just asked him, uh, you know, kind of what sort of a tone did he expect to generate from this this material, and how much control did he did he expect to have over the film. Uh, as we were making it, because that was something that I was concerned about too. Is that he was getting into a situation with new producers, and uh, I wanted to make sure that he felt like he was going to be able to make something that was actually going to to reflect his talents, as opposed to you know have it sort of taken away from him later, and then we don't know what would end up happening. So he felt very confident though about all of this, and I had a discussion with the producer who uh, who seemed completely. Uh, forthright and, and straight about what he was making and what he wanted to do with it uh, and how much he would really get involved with the creative, which was almost none. Uh, so I got started on the job, and as we were prepping, it became apparent that um, that we were onto something really interesting because uh, Lucky hadn't done a film at this scale for a while, meaning small scale, and it was so much easier to to maintain a direct connection with him and the, and the creative process was so much more streamlined than it would have been on a larger budget. Um, that's not to say that a larger budget wouldn't have been helpful. It's just that we were able to really uh, con- be, be in a contained unit. And by the time we actually got to shooting, it really uh, there was there was very much little left to say. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on your initial response to the script because it is a movie that really divides people. I'm wondering if you did you in- immediately respond to it and see if it's something you were interested in or did it frighten you off a little bit? Or? It, it, I'll be frank. It was, it was a bit hard to swallow, um, 
knowing I also I've I've know I know the the writer of the novel that it's based on and I've also then went and looked at a sample of the you know the the woman is actually a sequel to a uh, an, another much less lauded uh, horror film and I saw that and I was like oh man that's 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 not something I want to get involved in. And these were the again the questions that I, I just point blank brought up to Lucky. I said, listen, you know, we could get trapped into something really really uh, uh, creatively horrible here. And you know, he continued to reassure me that it was going to be okay. But my rea initial reaction to the script was sort of fascination and and terror all at once because it's definitely uh, a very very interesting and powerful parable. I mean, it's it's much like if you were to hand somebody the script for Irreversible, the Gaspar Noe film, and then say, "Well, what do you think of that?" Right. You know, <laughs> it has a lot to do with who's directing it and and how much control are they going to be able to have over what happens over the final cut? Because you know that film is definitely the devil is in the details. Gaspar Noe's film, I mean, and this film is very much the same way because if it was directed by somebody else. Uh, I don't feel like it would have been anywhere near as good a film. Like the the script is, um, is not the. It's not the main driver of this story. It actually exists inside the uh, performances of the actors and also in this kind of semi uh, fairy tale world that gets built around uh, around all of the people in the film. Part of it has to do with how it looks. One of the things that was uh, that is interesting about how Lucky put that film together is, uh, at no time do any of the really uh, heavy horror events occur while the kids that are in the cast are actually in the set. Everything is split up. Um, so even though there's a scene where directly the the woman has like this insane uh, sort of abuse moment with the boy with the, the like teenage boy they're never actually in the same set together when that stuff is happening and that was that's like lucky's sort of just his own personal kind of uh um i don't know moral sort of code he do, he's trying to he wants to make great movies he wants to do something amazing he wants to push the envelope on what can happen in a movie but he doesn't believe that you need to like actually wreck people in order to make it happen. And so he's extremely careful when he's doing stunts. He's extremely careful about the fact that we have these little kids around on set. And he basically, we didn't do anything that was particularly traumatic uh, until they saw the movie. And then that was pretty traumatic. The first time the littlest girl saw the film was just this time at the Sunset Five at the premiere. And uh, she's never been allowed to see it before, and it was uh, it was pretty amazing to see her reaction because she's a huge role in the film, and uh, she does a great job. And for her to then understand kind of what puzzle she was a piece of was really interesting to talk to this little kid about it. But um, overall, I think that the uh, the toughest stuff was the stuff with Polly, where she's you know yeah she's chained up, and I mean a lot of that is obviously simulated, and we had a rig built so that she could. She wasn't actually cuffed into and all of that that kind of stuff. And the stunt coordinator, this guy Jared Burke, was very intelligent about how uh, he made all of those things look realistic without anybody having to do anything really crazy. But I mean, there was plenty of times where it was uncomfortable, and uh, and we also the that that set is built inside of a of a high school gymnasium that we rented while we were working, and. Um, 
we didn't have great climate control. We didn't have a lot of things. The one thing we did have, though, is complete privacy. Nobody bothered anybody on this job because we were in the middle of a little town in their high school. Like, nobody knew what the hell was going on in there. And uh, that was great because Polly felt really comfortable with the whole crew. She was completely friendly and fine with everyone. Didn't mind all of the uncomfortable stuff that happens once she got to know everybody because she felt like it was a real family that got built, and, it, and it, it was. You know, Everybody was very respectful. What was your approach in terms of the look that you wanted for the movie, in terms of the lighting and, and color and lenses and things like that? Well, Lucky saw on my, uh, you know, on my reel, he saw this movie that I shot um, a few years back called Babysitter Wanted, which is a... Another kind of low-budget horror film. Uh, it was one of the last of its kind. It was shot on 35, and it was made for what now would be what, uh, an exorbitant budget of $2 million or something like that uh, for that genre of film. And uh, that film had a look that Lucky really responded to. And what it really looks like is it looks like a movie that somebody like, uh, you know, Owen, Owen Roisman would have, would have shot. Like a, a lot of... Um, a lot of, of lighting motivated by practicals, a lot of, of, uh, of uh, light sources in frame, trying to not overlight things, trying to really work in the toe of the, of the, uh, of the film. And uh, he just loved that. And then when, as we got to talking about the woman, that was, the, that was like the, the jumping off point. Like, and the movie that I told him that I was really interested in when I did... Uh, Babysitter Wanted was the original taking of Pelham 123, which has, uh, it's, it's just at the beginning of what I think is the best, the era of the best cinematography in American history. I mean, all of these, these guys who started to discover that it was A-OK to, to severely underexpose things by the, by the standard of the day, now that would be considered almost normal exposures, and, and the amount of black in the frame and the, and the, the, uh, the um, understanding that when you're edging somebody from, from a, a source that's behind them, that source can be way under, and you're still going to get a really nice uh, exposure and edge on, on people's faces. And to try and shape things in this manner, that was, that was back then really new, and um, you know, it was something that I've taken to heart for everything I've ever worked on. And, and this was what we decided we wanted to do with this film, but we, we really wanted to, to make sure that there were um, clear motivations for every light. I didn't want to have any just sort of, you know, magical lighting coming from nowhere. And particularly since a big part of the movie happens in a tiny little set, uh, we needed to uh, establish how that place worked. There's some looks with the door open in the day, looks with the door open at night, looks with the door shut during the day, and each one of those had a different setup, and we built the, the, um, uh, the lighting setups to be uh, evergreen so that we could like flip between these and try and get to help the short schedule. You know, because that was one of the things you get cornered uh, schedule-wise all the time when doing a little movie like this. And was uh, the decision to shoot in high def, was that uh, aesthetic or budgetary or both? I think it's a mixture. Um, obviously, budgetarily, it would have been really hard to shoot this thing on 35. Um, it would have had a lot to do with the target that the film would have been intended for. Because the, the producers, while they were uh, not going to ever resist the idea of it becoming a theatrical film, which it now has, uh, they weren't... Um, foolishly expecting that. And so they knew that it was probably going to be a, f a film that finished on high def. And that 
meant that if I was going to choose a film format, then uh, that would have actually been a pretty expensive uh, step for me to get a high-def master done um, and to, to do all of the telecining and everything. And then if it was going to get theatrically released, then we would also have to do the photochemical print side of it because there would be no way that they could have afforded a real DI. And I expected that that's what I would have done is, is uh, I would have done a photochemical print uh, which is what I did with with uh, a couple of other films that I, I've done in the past where we shot 35 and we didn't have a ton of money. I just skipped the DI and just did a photochemical print because you can actually do incredible work that way. Um, but this one also, the, the real uh, motivator behind it was Lucky because he has done a few HD films and he likes the freedom that he's able to get by having a monitor that's at full resolution and to not have to worry about take lengths and to be able to uh, do pickups inside of takes. It, for him, that kind of freedom really makes a difference. And now I didn't really think that there was a, uh, an image quality uh, uh, trade-off. The, the, um, the system we used is, is terrific. And so it, it really, um, I'm, I'm completely confident that that thing can be projected anywhere and it'll look as good as, as pretty much anything. You know. So what, what system did you use? Well, it was, we shot just using the Sony uh, Cine Alta. Um, it, it's actually the, the SRW9000, which, which is basically the exact same camera as the F23, uh, the Sony F23, except it has a tape deck built into it. So it's, it's a little bit less cumbersome on set. And then I use the Zeiss uh, DigiPrimes, which are, I'm going to miss them. For, uh, now that you know most movies are going to move to uh, shooting on an Alexa uh, for HD, the, those those lenses are really really something. And but they only work with the uh, two thirds inch chip. Um, and the the thing that made that camera a bit better is to use uh, this uh, third party um, uh, imaging software uh, made by my friend Steve Yedlin. And it allows uh, it allows you to record the the sensor values in a log uh, in a log curve before they go to tape, so that you have all of the image quality uh, you can possibly record uh, on the on the tape. And it has a matching lookup table for you to use in in post. That is an exact match. So you what you see. Um, is really what you end up getting later. And then on top of that, he based all of the density values on uh, existing Kodak film stock. So a lot of the, um, uh, well, all, any, any meter reading or any, any uh, uh, lighting that you're used to doing with film applies pretty much directly when using the Yedlog uh, setup. So it really made, the, made it really easy for me because I've been used to shooting film in the past and uh, I didn't have to worry about the the um, contrast uh, ratios changing or the uh, the latitude being reduced because it's about the same, uh, and that made a big difference. It made it so so easy, you know. And then you could also, if you wanted to, you could look on the monitor, just to sort of have the satisfaction that your your uh, you know your crazy idea is sort of working, you know. So that that's like having a safety net there, you know. And you don't need to use like a DIT. There's nobody there to the images. Um, the uh, the way the camera captures the image is locked in prep and never changes, so it's it's always the same the whole time, mm -hmm. makes it easier. So what um, 
I guess you, you're saying you sort of replicate the, the film stocks. What what would be the equivalent? What film stock? Was it, it was based on the the densities of of uh, fifty two eighteen as it would have been printed at Technicolor, but back when Technicolor still had a uh, photochemical uh, lab, and that's a that's a kind of a very typical uh, um, uh, film uh, exposure curve. Um, most of the Kodak stocks respond very similarly to each other. They just have different, relatively different speeds. But so you know, four over is the same on most Kodak stocks. It kind of looks the same as it would uh, uh, when you use uh, the Cinealti camera with the Yedlog uh, gamma curve. So was the uh, was using this Yedlog system. Uh did that have to have play into your decision to shoot with the Sony cameras, or did you ever consider a different camera system for this? Um, well, there were many cameras were considered. Uh, the Edlog system made it uh, the decision for me really easy, because I'd used it before, repeatedly. I'd used it for commercials. I've used it for other features, um, and it works so well. Particularly the post production side of it is really easy, uh, and. Now also, I use a lookup table on set, a lookup box on set that has the exact same lookup table for later. So, you, I mean, everybody gets to see what the image is going to look like. And uh, you're recording to tape, to uh, HDCAM SR, which is a great format, even if it's a little bit uh, old school. Huge amount of information, very robust, really easy to deal with. Like the post-production uh, pipeline is totally simple. So that made it really great. Um, there's a lot of competition, though, in, in the uh, HD formats. And obviously, uh, you know, the producers were bringing up, like, the RED camera, and they, were, they wanted to talk more about some of the other prosumer-level cameras. And uh, I just, w once we looked at footage that I had made with, with the Yedlog uh, uh, equipped Sonys, and then we tried out some other stuff, it was just not, it was obvious that that, that was going to work for what we wanted to make. Um, and the, the image to me is just really pleasing. It's a really easy to use, really smooth looking image, has great color, uh, and the, uh, the resolution is just terrific. So it, and on top of that, because it's a small chip camera, you can use the, uh, the Digiprimes, which are this very unusually exceptional set of lenses that are now, they've kind of fallen out of vogue. And that whole camera system was much cheaper than most because most people are really like, uh, averse to the to the two thirds cameras now, you know, because they're obsessed with this short depth of field thing. Of course, nobody's really thinking about the fact that you can shoot at a at a one nine with a two thirds camera because the the lenses are designed to go there, and the depth of field is about the same as a two eight two eight four split on a on a on a thirty five millimeter sized chip. So. I don't know. <laughs> it made it made sense to me, and the movie looks fine. So uh, you know, it, it worked for us. And I liked the um, the durability and simplicity of the actual camera. You know, things pretty nasty looking. It's kind of like a looks like a 1980s boombox, but it really worked. I mean, it never not a single failure, not a single problem ever. Camera body worked the whole way through, and we really uh, tortured it. And what kind of uh, system did you color correct the film? Uh, it was done on um, uh, uh, Final Cut Color, mm -hmm. and um, the uh, uh, the colorist is a guy who actually used to work at Technicolor, uh, and he, uh, in their photochemical uh, um, 
department and then they closed that and now he's moving over to doing digital work and his eye is just incredible so the uh, um, the the we didn't really lay any kind of a heavy look on it in post and that was very very intentional like we were the whole time we were trying to just be very true and real and uh, and work the same way we would have worked as if we were if we had shot a, a 35 film and we're doing a photochemical correction like we didn't crank up the contrast much or or try and dig out impossible information in the highlights or shadows. We tried to limit our our corrections to more of the basic, uh, you know, uh, red, green, blue shifts. Um, I mean, there are times when we obviously uh, finesse stuff, but overall, it, the color corrections were very basic. Um, they don't look it, the movie doesn't look that different than the dailies. So now that the movie is getting a theatrical release, do you uh, do you go to 35 prints at all, or is it all going to be digital projection everywhere? Digital projection everywhere. Um, it's going to have uh, DCP, um, what are those, JPEG 2000 uh, drives to go to the theaters, and that's how they're going to show it. And it really works just fine. That's, that's not a problem. The only difficulty is that some of the... Uh, some of the theaters that are a little behind the times and their projection quality is not that good. But all of the, uh, the big places have excellent digital projection now. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of public exhibitions of the film, the Sundance screening has become kind of notorious uh, for the reaction to the film. I was wondering if you, if you were there and saw some of those initial reactions and if you were surprised by the kind of... Uh, reactions the movie got. Oh, yeah. I was there. Um, very surprised, amazed. I mean, first of all, it's just the, the Sundance Film Festival is is kind of the like blue ribbon of, of, you know, making an independent film. So to be able to have actually gone there and, and to be sitting in a theater in a huge place with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, all of whom are at least have some investment in movies. Like they like them a lot or they work in the industry, but I mean, they're, they're, every single person in there is there because they think movies are special in their lives in some way. And so that's the kind of audience that often can be kind of blase and you see people like using their Blackberry in the, in the screening and getting up and leaving halfway through and not, you know, and none of that happened in that screening. Every, as soon as the, the movie got past the first reel, it was, you know, everybody was enwrapped, and then the people started getting scared, and there were seriously terrified folks. I mean, there were people running out of there because they were so upset. And I mean, it's not a gory film, right. it, but it psychologically like just hammers on some of the hot buttons that you think about everything about family and like you know siblings and parents and and you know our the way our society kind of works it, it's very very aggressive in this manner and so there were some people who just weren't ready for it and um i guess there was this uh group of of they were they were like some sort of fundamentalist christian uh church group that had come to sundance to protest kevin smith's film red state and I guess a couple of the mem- members of their uh, of their group had leaked into our screening, and they were not ready for that at all. The because um, Red State is I think it's a little bit more straight ahead in in what it is. It's it's definitely like this is a horror slasher film. It's got a lot of blood and a lot of stuff in it. This film doesn't really let you know kind of what's happening until you get deeper into it. And I think that the poor guy was just not equipped to to see this happen and I mean he lost it completely like forgot that he was in a room with like 700 people and just started yelling 
and was like trying to sort of find Lucky and like attack him. It was it was insane. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, you know, I've heard of of people screaming out and getting upset about at screenings at festivals, but I mean, this was something else. I mean, they had to haul him out of there, and he never stopped talking the whole way. Like he was so mad and and militant that this was something that was really. Uh, you know, needed to be stopped now before like too many more people were hurt. Like it was, it was really something, but also a huge compliment. Right. Compliment to the filmmaker, compliment to the festival, and they handled it really well. Uh, you know, that was a nervy Q and A afterwards, but otherwise it was really good. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.